Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapters 19, verses 41 to 44. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word of the Lord. Most of us, most of us are very aware of what is closest to us. So when I say that word aware, what I mean is what is foremost in your mind? What is always there present in your mind? And here's what I mean by we're most aware of what's closest to us. We are always aware of our bodies. And especially when something is wrong with our bodies. A few months ago, um, I started dealing with a little bit of uh, kind of pain in my fingers running down my wrist on my right hand. And I just tried to ignore it primarily because I thought, ah, it's just too much of a difficulty to go to a doctor. But this fall, the pain began radiating further down the arm and was pretty sharp and I was losing some strength in, in my right arm. And I I saw a doctor for something else and also asked about this. And he said, oh, you may have carpal tunnel syndrome or some version thereof. So I got one of these beautiful wrist bracelets that's uh, ever so fashionable, told to use ibuprofen and ice it, some various stretches to do. And I will say, none of you knew that I was dealing with that. But you have your own version of sickness, of illness, of brokenness, of your body not working quite right that you're constantly very aware of. Why? Why? Because it's you. If we were to move out even one ring from our physical bodies, we're also very aware of those who are closest to us. In the forefront of our minds are our family or close friends. You might be very aware of your kid's stress over a math test this week or over your spouse's challenges at work or over your mom who's sick and halfway across the country. The rest of us have no idea, but you are very aware. I am very aware of the challenges and the needs of those closest to me. And this is true not only of people, right? I'm also aware, it's in the forefront of my mind, the the things that I live in most, my house. If there's a plumbing issue, I'm very aware of it inside of my house. When the grass needs to be mowed, you are most aware of it. No one else really notices probably. But what I want us to do today, and similar to what we did last week and we'll do the next two weeks, is to move out a ring of awareness. I want us to move out from my body, my family, my house or apartment to my city. I want us to become people who are aware of the city we live in, the places we dwell. That word city, and I'm going to use that more often than place this morning, a way to kind of define that is the collection of people in the places we dwell. And it's represented by the businesses and the buildings and the schools and the park areas and the streets and the culture of a place. It is our city. 
And I want us to notice in the couple of verses out of Luke 19, Jesus' awareness for the city of Jerusalem. He has a deep awareness that moves him to love and concern. You know, some weeks we look at entire chapters of the Bible. This morning we're going to look at two verses. So in Luke 19, 41 and 42, we see Jesus' response and approach to Jerusalem. Here's what we read. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now the setting is this. Jesus has entered Jerusalem in his final week on earth. The day before, he rode over the Mount of Olives on a donkey to the shouts and cheers of all the crowd saying, Hosanna, save us, son of David. He was entering triumphantly the day before. And according to Luke, the very next day, Jesus enters Jerusalem again because he and the disciples were staying about a mile outside of Jerusalem. And they come in over the same hill, the Mount of Olives, but this time without all the fanfare. And as the city crests into view, Jesus begins weeping. He's heartbroken. He's brought to tears. And he prays for the city of Jerusalem. Now we need to stop here and just recognize Jerusalem is a unique city. It's a city unlike any other city in salvation history. As you go through the story of redemption in the Bible, Jerusalem is at the epicenter of what God is doing. We see this from the time of David. When David becomes king, he picks Jerusalem as God's city, the place where he would have the nation's capital. And he wants to build a temple there. His son Solomon builds a temple for God. And that temple becomes the center of worship for the entire nation because they believe that God dwelt there. God declared, I will dwell in my city in this temple in Jerusalem. And when the prophets centuries later came along and warned of judgment to come, the judgment was very often focused on Jerusalem. Because of the sin of the nation, the judgment of God is going to be brought on Jerusalem. And in the centuries where the Israelites were taken into exile by the Babylonians and Assyrians and eventually returned from exile, the primary concern of the people was rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, the dwelling place of God. But then at that first Christmas, Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. And when he entered His primary focus was getting to Jerusalem to get to do what he was called to do, to live and die for us in Jerusalem, that unique city, that place of salvation. So not every city is Jerusalem, but my hope this morning is as we look at Jesus' emotional response, his active response to seeing Jerusalem, that we might see for ourselves an approach to our own cities, to the places where we dwell. If place matters to us, we will be the sort of people who seek the peace of our cities. We'll admit the sin of our cities and we'll deeply love our cities just as Jesus did. So first, one of the things that we see is that Jesus is seeking the peace of the city. We see this in verse 42. Jesus said, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day, and he's talking to Jerusalem, he's talking to a place, not a person, but a place that's representative of all the people who dwelled there. Would that you, Jerusalem, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus longs for the city to know God and to experience the fullness of God's ways and the peace that comes with it. Now, we've talked about this here at CCV before. Biblical peace is very different than our version of an English definition of it. It's a Hebraism. It comes from a Jewish understanding of the word shalom. In that word shalom is wholeness, harmony, completion, total well-being. It has to do with everything being right. If you're talking about it relationally, shalom is when you're in sync with somebody else. Or to use some other metaphors, shalom is the Rubik's Cube being solved. Shalom is the square peg actually going in the square hole. Shalom is, so I have a door in my house, one of the doors in my house, uh, the interior doors that often sticks. And I've found over the course of living in that house that if I tighten the screws on the hinges, it no longer sticks. Once I tighten the screws and it swings and closes without any hindrance, that door is at shalom. It's doing what it's meant to do in the right sort of way. It's in balance, completion, wholeness. Jesus wants the city to know peace, wholeness, completion, shalom, which means every single aspect of well-being. You know, if we look back over the past 50 years, the church has often gone to one of a couple of extremes. The conservative church has been very concerned with the spiritual well-being of cities. The concern is that the gospel would be proclaimed and people would come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. And that really is a primary concern for that sort of well-being. But they've often neglected a whole other side. The liberal church has been much better at concern for the social and economic well-being of a city. But if we're to be gospel-driven people in a gospel-driven church, then we should be concerned for every aspect of shalom and well-being. The physical, the social, the psychological, the emotional, the economic, the spiritual. The well-being in every possible way. So that when we see a window that's broken, we're there to fix it. Or graffiti, we're there to clean it up. That we are the kind of kids in school who are concerned with a kid who is a social outcast just because he can't speak English and he's been new to the country. Instead of being the one who excludes him, ignores him, we say, hey, you need to be socially brought in. We're concerned about the psychological shalom of people. People who are dealing with mental illness and the families trying to care for them. We're concerned for the economic well-being of our cities. That there would be jobs for people and that the working poor would have places to live. And of course, of course, of course, we're concerned for the spiritual shalom of people. That they would meet the one source, the true source of healing and wholeness and completion, Jesus Christ. If place matters, we will be the sort of people who seek the peace, the complete well-being of our city. 
If place matters, we'll secondly admit the sin of our city. Here's what Jesus says. After praying that they would know peace, he says, but now, verse 42, the second half of verse 42, but now they, the way of peace, is hidden from your eyes, Jerusalem. What's he talking about there? Jesus is saying, right now, Jerusalem does not recognize me, the true source of shalom and peace. They are in spiritual blindness and unbelief because ultimately he knows Jerusalem and the whole city by the end of the week is going to reject him, God. And if we are going to love our cities before the places that we live in, we need to be honest about the sin of our city. This includes overt sin like unbelief or immorality or vice, but it also includes hidden sin, the injustices, the violence behind closed doors, the places of darkness and evil that nobody wants to root out, or even our failure as people, as a city, to extend mercy. We need to be honest about the sin of our places, the overt sin, the hidden sin, and even the things we simply love more than God, the idols of our city. You know, when I first moved back to Vienna seven years ago, I started observing Vienna as much as I possibly could. And one of the things I noticed about this town in which this church is, is residing right now is that it is a very family-centered town. People move here regardless of their faith, regardless of their religion, because they see the schools and the sports programs and that they can let their kids walk from middle school down to the coffee shop and not worry about it. It's a safe place. It's a place where kids can thrive, and so people move here to raise kids. That's a good thing. But in that very good thing can also be the idols of our heart. We're probably a place that worships our kids a little too much. And you see this in our defensiveness, our visceral reaction when a teacher would, God forbid, give our kid a B. When the coach would not start our child. Or our deep angst and disappointment when our our child does not succeed at something. We're probably taking family and kids and putting it above the one who is meant to be worshipped. You know, another thing that you notice if you just simply walk the streets is that there is a lot of financial prosperity and career success here. And you know what? Those are basically good things. We want people to find financial prosperity and career success. But if they become the primary thing, the ultimate thing, we will be the sort of town, the sort of city that slowly excludes the poor and the struggling. Because... What I want on my street is another big house to raise up my property values, not a place for the working poor to live because that'll drive the property values down. When success and prosperity is the primary goal, we slowly exclude those who can't raise or keep up the bar. Loving our city does not mean hiding or dismissing what's wrong but confessing our sin, 
confessing the sin of our city and of our places. And this is what the prophets did. You know, the prophets on behalf of the entire nation would cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes and repent on behalf of the city of Jerusalem, on behalf of the nation before God saying, Lord, we have sinned in these ways. And we're called to do the same sort of thing. But we're also called to do what Jesus does here, which is reveal what's wrong. To pull back the curtain, even if it's self-incriminating because we do the same sorts of things and to work to make things right. If place matters, we'll be honest about and admit all the sin of our city. But here we need to stop again. We want to see and seek and work for the peace and shalom of every aspect of our city. We want to admit and be honest about the sin of our city. But ultimately, the gospel tells us that only Jesus can save our city. So we are going to work towards God's purposes for our city, celebrating what's good, righting what's wrong, admitting the sin, seeking the peace. But we must understand that we can't save our city or its people. Only Jesus can. You know, Jesus weeps as he sees Jerusalem. He weeps and is heartbroken because he knows that by the end of the week, Jerusalem will reject him. And he, he is the thing that makes for peace. He is the source of forgiveness, of wholeness, of being right. And they will reject him. Unless the gospel penetrates hearts and transforms people, any change in a city is only temporary or external. And so while we as individuals, we as a church should be working to constrain evil or provide housing for the poor or new businesses that are bringing good to a community, we need to recognize true forgiveness and lasting shalom only come through Christ. And this is true for each of us. You know, if you come here today because you think church is a good place to kind of deal with what's wrong with you, you're trying to fix what's broken in your life, you want peace relationally or just in your own heart, you don't need a better job, you don't need a spouse, you don't need more self-discipline, you need Jesus. He alone is the source of true forgiveness, healing, and wholeness. If place matters, we, like Jesus, will deeply love our city. We read that very first verse of our section here, verse 41. And when Jesus drew near to the city and saw the city, he wept over it. It's amazing. Jesus weeps over a city that he knows is going to reject him. 19th century Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, Jesus knew well what they were going to do to him within a few days, and yet he still pitied them. It's such a different response than we have when we feel like we're going to be rejected. If we see people turning against what is very important to us, we tend not to have weeping in our heart. What we tend to do better is blame. When we see somebody who's against us, we like to blame. So what's wrong with our city? What's wrong with our nation? Well, it's the president. Or it's pop culture. Or it's big business. 
It's always somebody, and it creates a self-righteous them sort of attitude. What you see in Jesus is a heartbroken sorrow, not a blaming self-righteousness. Weeping means concern and compassion and comes from a deep place of love. The deep love that we're called to have for a city involves heartbreak. You see it in Jesus here. He is weeping heartbroken for the city of Jerusalem. It seems so weird to be heartbroken for a place, but he's heartbroken for the city. And almost kind of reverse asks us, does your heart break for your city? And if not, why not? Well, one of the reasons I would say is our heart breaks most for what we know best. For example, are you going to be more heartbroken as you're driving along and on the side of the road is a flattened squirrel or when you get home and find that your dog of 12 or 15 years is dead? They're both animals that have died, but which is going to break your heart more? The one that you know better, that you've experienced more, that you've played with and walked with and talked to. Our heart will break for what we know best. Jesus has this sort of heart for the city of Jerusalem. We see it actually a few chapters earlier in Luke 13, when Jesus again is talking about Jerusalem and he talks about it in a motherly sort of way. He says in Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Think about what Jesus is doing there. there. Jesus is seeing the city of Jerusalem and all of its people as his own children. I wish I could protect you and care for you and bring you close to me and let you know how much I love you. Jesus' heart breaks for this city. And I would say the more we know our city, the places we dwell in, its culture, its people, its strengths and weaknesses, the more we will deeply love our city as well. So I would say do something simple. Observe your city. Observe your neighborhood. Observe your school and your office. Engage it and get to know it. That deep love within us should drive us at times to heartbreak, and it should always be driving us to intercede for our city. This is what Jesus does, right? He doesn't just weep. He also prays for Jerusalem. And this is very similar to what happens in Genesis 18. What does Abraham do? He prays, pleads, intercedes, advocates for the city of Sodom before God. And it's one of these great interactions that's recorded in the Bible. As Abraham hears that the Lord is going to bring destruction on the city of Sodom for its sin and rebellion against him, and Abraham comes up to the Lord and, and pleads with him, Lord, what if there are 50 righteous people? Surely you won't destroy the entire city for 50 righteous people. You're a just and loving God, aren't you? And the Lord says, okay, Abraham, if there are 50 righteous, I won't destroy it. And then Abraham comes back and says, okay, Lord, what if there are five are lacking from that 50 and there's only 45? And he has this interplay going back and forth with God, bargaining with God on behalf of the city of Sodom. It should give us boldness in our own prayers, recognizing that we can go before the Lord begging and pleading on behalf of things, even on behalf of a city. If we won't 
plead on behalf of our cities who will. Boldly plead for your city before God. It's what a number of us did yesterday and the first ever, and hopefully multiple times we'll do this, the Envision Vienna prayer walk. We walked around from town council to a school, to ball fields, to the fire department, to down city streets, and we prayed and begged and pleaded for God to to bring his mercy and grace and goodness upon our local government, upon our schools and their teachers, upon our first responders, upon the kids that grow up in this community, upon the homes and the houses and families that are represented, upon the businesses, we were interceding on behalf of our own city. And if you're not sure what to pray, you can borrow from that thing that Jesus gave us, that Lord's Prayer thing. It's got some good stuff in it. When Jesus prays, here's a way to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring that prayer before the Lord for your places. Lord, the way it is in heaven where there is shalom, may that be the case here where I dwell, where I work, where I walk, where I play. Deep love involves heartbreak and interceding and giving ourselves Think about it. Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. He prays for Jerusalem. And by the end of the week, he dies for Jerusalem. He gives himself to the city. And what's interesting too, if you look, I'm just going to kind of bounce out of that. There's a theme throughout the Bible about where God dwells. In the Garden of Eden, God dwells with Adam and Eve and walks with them. During the time of the temple and the kingdoms, God dwells in the city of Jerusalem in a temple. After Christmas and for a few years, the Lord dwelt with us in the person of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, walking around Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. But after his death and resurrection, Jesus says, and now the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is going to fall on you. And where you are, I will dwell. And where the people of God are gathered, there I am. We no longer need a temple. Each one of us is a walking, dwelling place of God. And collectively, we are God for and in locally a city. We are God's presence now here. In other words, we are God's plan to reach, affect, change and bless our city. In the gospel and life study that we do as a newcomer's study and a new member's study here at Christ Church Vienna, Tim Keller quotes British theologian Leslie Newbigin, who put it this way, the gospel does not become public truth for a society, that is a city, by being propagated as a theory or a worldview and certainly not as a religion. It can become public truth only insofar as it is embodied in a group, the church, which is both abiding in Christ and engaged in the life of the world. Let me simplify that. The gospel becomes truth in our city through us. As we live out the gospel and engage our city, If place matters, we will love our city, giving, interceding, and even at times weeping for it. Here's a question. 
Who are the chief advocates in most cities? I would suggest it's the political and business leaders. And I think that's a good thing. If you're a political leader, a business leader in a city, you want to see it succeed. But both political leaders and business leaders have something to gain or lose by a city's success or failure. It's unfortunate that the church has not been the primary advocate in most cities. Because place matters to God. Locality matters to God. It's in local places. It's in local places where God walked and spoke and healed and loved and died and rose again. The story of redemption is the story of God entering a place to bring about his redemption for humanity. If place matters to us, we will begin to see our city, which means all of our places, wherever it is that you dwell or work or play or go to school, we'll see Tyson's or Capitol Hill, or we'll see the Mark Center or Herndon. We'll see Thoreau and Madison and Marshall and Oakton and Trinity and Dominion and Luther Jackson. We'll see the places we live like Lakevale and uh, and Eudora and Southside and Lawyers North and Maple Avenue and Church Street. We'll see all of these places as the places God has put us to love deeply because he loves them deeply. Places where we are called to confront sin work for shalom, proclaim the gospel, and reveal Jesus. And that's how it is that we will be for and not just in the places God has us. Let's pray. Lord of creation, who entered time and space in the person of Jesus and walked this earth to bring us salvation, we lift up our city, And I invite you in your own heads to think of your places, your school, your street, your office, the town you actually live in. Lord, we lift up our city. Forgive the sin of our city. Heal the brokenness of our city. Bring your peace to our city. And may our hearts break and our lives be given for the places you have us this day. Amen. Veiled in darkness today, waiting for the promised day, while across the shadowy Streamed a flood of glorious light Heavenly voices chanting then Peace on earth, goodwill to men Peace on earth, goodwill to men Still Up from death's dark veil arise Voices of a world in grief Prayers of those who seek relief Now our 
darkness pierce again Peace on earth, goodwill to men Peace on earth, goodwill to men Yeah. 